For Thursday, March 8th, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we sit down with the Poet Laureate for Washington State, Claudia Castro Luna, to hear her thoughts on what poetry can teach us about ourselves, and also about how it's helped her come to terms with her own experiences migrating as a child from El Salvador. It's helped me process the trauma of war that I lived. It was like a sickness in a way that I had inside of me that I couldn't really understand. And it's through writing that I've come to feel myself as a more whole person. Then we talk with filmmaker Derek Armstrong McNeil about his documentary, The Road to Nicholsville, about the Seattle homeless communities of the same name, and about how the organized nature of homelessness in the city has transformed our perception of the issue. It's, it's easy to dismiss people just sort of wandering around on the side of the freeway. It's not easy to dismiss, at least for me, actual neighborhoods, if you will, of homeless people. That's all coming up, so stay with us. My first guest is poet Claudia Castro Luna. She is the author of two volumes of poetry, Finding Marias and This City, and she was recently named the fifth poet laureate of Washington State, this after being named the first civic poet of Seattle, a position she served in from 2015 to 2017. I started our conversation by asking her what it means to be named Poet Laureate at such an extraordinary time in our history and about how poetry can help us process what's happening in our country right now. Well, I think... You know, poetry has been around for thousands of years for a reason. And I think often we, in our everyday lives, we reach for it in times of intense energy, such as at a wedding, there's often, Hmm. you know, poems that get read, or at funerals. Um, Certainly during political upheaval and political change, there's always been poets who step forward and speak. Um, so I think it's a it's it has the capacity of um, verbalizing difficult things, things that we all have trouble with saying, and through image and through sound and through the chosen word, poetry has the ability to convey thoughts. I think and feelings, most of all feelings, that. Um, we collectively share and that speak to us then in that at those particular moments. And I think that's why we reach for it. Well, I'm going to ask a question that I know is probably on the mind of a number of listeners right now. And that is, what, what do you say to people who, and I'm sure you get this all the time, uh, who claim to not, quote unquote, get poetry? What, what do you say to that? Yeah, I think, I mean, that it happens and it <laughs> I think it happens less and less, you know, frankly. I think that kids are exposed to poetry a lot these days, um, but it still has this stain of um, a formal way of understanding it. And I think that is what we, that is foremost in people's minds. And sometimes you then hear a poem, a more recent poem, one that doesn't, is not um, structured in these old-fashioned ways, that it's very refreshing. So I think there's something about a lingering attitude toward a poetry that is researched or that it is presented in such a way as to make it inaccessible or as or containing of... Yes, yes, oh, totally. Of, and, totally. And that's what's interesting about your background, and I want to get to that in a moment, is that you could be the furthest, you're, you're the furthest thing from elitist in, yeah. in terms of your background. And so maybe this gives you uh, an interesting opportunity to be the entry point for mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. to poetry. Yeah. Well, so how, do, how does the 
But how does a poem begin for you? Do you start with an image? Do you start, do you simply start writing and see where the writing goes? Does it vary? I think a lot of times my poems begin with dreams. Mm. Um, And so there is an image that is the onset of the poem. And often the image comes in a dream or a dream state, um, sometimes in a walk. I want to go out. I live very close to a beautiful Lincoln Park here in West Seattle that is a gorgeous forest and and sound access. It has sound access, so you can walk right along the water. And, and something about the movement of walking and being in the trees and being near the water brings up um, images or a line or sometimes a word. Often it's just a word. Are you a notebook carrier? I, I carry my phone. I do carry uh-huh. notebooks, and I have one next to my bed because I wake up sometimes in the middle of the night and I have to jot it down. Can you read your writing? I sometimes do that myself and I wake up in the morning and I'm like, what the heck did I write? Yes, (laughs) sometimes, if I'm lucky, sometimes not. But if I don't do it, um, I can't tell you how many times I've thought of a a word or a line and I think, I, I, I repeat it 20 times and I think, I'll remember it. By the time I get home, I cannot forget this. And I get home and I have forgotten it. So I really, (laughs) it's imperative to write it down, you know, to capture the, the, what's driving that, the feeling behind it. So I want to shift over and talk about your background. Mm -hmm. And I alluded to that uh, just a moment ago. You were born in El Salvador. Mm -hmm. Uh, You came to this country at the age of 14, fleeing the Civil War uh, Mm -hmm. with your family. What are your memories of that journey? Mm. Yeah, they're difficult. They're very, they're difficult memories. And I have spent probably the last 10 years piecing together what they were because they uh, I didn't have a linear story of it necessarily. It was more little um, flourishes um, of feeling or, you know, one of the very strong images that I have is the day we left, when we left was January 17, uh, 1981. Um, it was a really terrible time in El Salvador. And there were, um, what do you call it, um, and Spanish is called Estado de Sitio. So it's the government had imposed times at which you could no longer uh, be out at night. And so like when, martial law. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. martial law. Yeah. And so we left. We had a very early plane to catch. And we decided that my family was going to travel on our own, that nobody was going to take us to the airport, which was our custom to go and say goodbye together because it was too dangerous. And we knew very well that we could be killed on the way to the airport because many people had been killed, including three American nuns had been killed on the same road that we had to travel, mm. I think, like two months after they were murdered and, and left abandoned on the side of the road. Um, so we knew it was dangerous. And... A driver came and picked us up. It was dangerous for the man who drove us there because he was riding, driving at a time when he wasn't supposed to. So the streets were completely deserted. But the image that that I have come back to is the image of my uncle and his wife and their baby, who was, he was what maybe eight months old, um, standing on their sidewalk, waving goodbye to us as we pulled away in this small van that took us and you know four suitcases essentially to the airport and we knew that was that was it we knew that the way my family construed the leaving el salvador it was very clear that we were not going to come back it didn't feel like we were going to go away and come back as some other people did for us it felt very uh 
finite. We were leaving. And um, so it was a, it's a very um, strong image of the three of them waving us goodbye and us knowing, all of us knowing that that may very well be, be the last time that we were going to see each other, that they could be killed or that we could be killed on the way to the airport. And so, um, yeah, it's a very haunting image. And it must be almost indescribable, and yet you're a poet, and so you, you've, I know that you've written about this, to think about home as being this place that is remote and shut off, and then this new home and this adopted place. <laughs> Can you talk about the experience of transitioning from one culture to another and, and what, that, what that means? Mm. Yeah, no, I think it took years. It took years. I mean... We, you know, I finished high school here. So I was um, a 10th grader when I came. So I finished high school in the U.S. I went to college in the U.S. Um, I went to graduate school and it wasn't after graduate school. You know, this is almost 20 years after being here and being educated here and living in a very American setting at mm. universities that I started to understand and have a feel for what life was like in the U.S. Because up until then, I was really attached to an immigrant community. So I wasn't, I was living here, but my cultural references were still those of a Salvadoran or a Central American. You know, mm. I I love maps. Um, and I always said when we, for for many years, we weren't even on the map. We were so on the margins of of the experience of being in America that we were, you know, not even on the map. That's how far on the margins we were. And I think that is true for many immigrants who come here. And my parents, you know, one of the greatest fortunes that I had and that I have had and my family had was that we left um, with a green card when we left mm -hmm. El Salvador. So we never really... Um, struggled with the documentation or documented status. So we went to public schools, public universities. I did, my sister as well. And my parents were able to work, but it was still really marginal work. It was washing dishes in a restaurant. It was cleaning a factory. It was, you know, being a domestic worker. My mother worked. Um, it was working in an electronic assembly line for my mom. So it was still uh, blue-collar jobs, uh, minimum wage earnings um, with you know, just a lot of struggle there. And so it, it, my experience at school, at university, meeting friends and discovering ideas, what's still uh, understood through this lens of immigration in my life at home. And so it didn't, it took me years and years to even understand, um, to even begin to put together what that rupture had been and to understand it as a rupture. Because when we were in the middle of this adjustment, learning English, getting you growing up for us, you know, for my sister and myself, we weren't really thinking about how we were feeling about it, which is what this metacognition that writing allows you to have wasn't there. We were in it. And right. so there wasn't any distance from the experience that came much, much later. Really. You didn't start writing uh, poetry uh, until, was it your 30s? Yeah, you mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and one of the assignments, and I tell people because I'm very interested in place and I'm very interested in our relationship to the place in which we live, and I think it comes from my experience as an immigrant, but um, one of the first assignments I had in grad school as an urban planner was to write about home, which is your question. 
and um, we were thinking about uh, developments, suburban developments, and how are those structured? How are those planned? How does it create opportunities for encounter? You know, how do good planners think about um, you know a, a home and yeah. space and places where people will live, right? Um, and the assignment was to write about home, and I remember being absolutely terrified. I had a panic attack in the classroom mm. because I just thought, I don't know. Um, I didn't know how to approach that because I really didn't have a home. You know, I, I, I was in my 30s. I was 30 years old at that point. And um, I hadn't thought about the loss of home. So the home that I could relate to in my mind was the home in El Salvador, but that home was lost. So mm. there wasn't really a home. And so I managed to get through the essay. But that essay, eventually, eventually I wrote myself, my MFA was many years later, was about taking up that question, which was posed to me. You talk about writing in Spanish, and I know that you write in both English and Spanish. And I'm, I'm wondering how that works for you in terms of the way that you approach poetry. Um, I think it's indisputable that Spanish is a much more rhythmic and to most people's ears, a much more beautiful language yeah. than, than English. Um, how do you see it? And, and really, how do you, how do you, how do you compose in your mind within each language? Mm -hmm. I think every time I write in Spanish, I'm very surprised at myself. I'm so? Well, because I'm really an English speaker. My uh, trove of language is deeper in English, because I've spent time, you know, studying, being an academic and spending time uh, reading in English, lots and lots. Mm -hmm. uh, even though I'm able to read uh, perfectly well in Spanish, I've read mostly in English. And so I find I have a lot more ease, particularly with vocabulary. Um, and so I lean into English for that. Spanish is like a different consciousness. It's, I'm always surprised where I go because the language is more rhythmic. And I'm just, yeah, it's like I enter a poem in Spanish and I think, oh, I didn't know I had the capacity to to go there with that language because the language drives a lot of the poem and the, the rhythm and the sounds of the language. I'm a much more, I am not a person that's necessarily concerned with end rhyme, um, in, the, in my English poems, but in Spanish, there's definitely a more sonorous, you know, sound to to the composition. And I think that's just the natural way that the language works. Uh, but I don't write that much in Spanish. Um, also, I think that there is a, there is a, because I tend to write a lot about um, this place that I lost. Um, I think English gives me a little bit of a distance between oh, me and the experience that Spanish doesn't have that for me. It is way more immediate. And I think I'm always, I tread carefully there. Yeah. I want to ask you about something that you wrote. And this is, this is kind of continuing on our, our discussion about uh, the, the differences in culture. And it's something that you wrote for Crosscut. And it was a it was in reaction to Trump's comments calling uh, your country of origin mm -hmm. and others like it, quote, whole countries. Mm -hmm. um, and you say in the piece, quote, my spirit simmered and churned until the shock of the morning sparked a fire, the reddest desire for creation, for art making, for truth telling. 
I think his comments just pissed a lot of people off, but you took it uh, as as a jumping off place for creativity. Uh, walk us through why that is. Well, I was I was shocked. I was really devastated by that comment. And I was a little, I was surprised. I was taken aback by my reaction because by now I should know better than to expect any sort of decency from Trump. Mm. Um, so I was surprised that I was surprised. I took it very personally. It, I was, it was, I was struck by the viciousness of it. And, you know, there's a, I have tenderness for the place where I was born, you know, and the ignorance overall, not just about El Salvador, but about, all of the places he mentioned, it was just so... Yeah, the uh, African countries yes, as well, it was, Haiti. It, and, yeah, um, it was It's just so... The ignorance there, breathtaking. And so I was angry, but I really didn't want to succumb to a low-knee a low reaction of lashing back in the same way. I really didn't want to do that because I've, I feel that, you know, I'm better than that. I'm better than than this man, and so are many of us, thousands of us, right? And 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 then I thought, how can I respond to this? How can I respond to this? And the only response that I could think of was, I need to sit down and write. I need to run down to my desk, which is down here in my house, and sit down and just write my heart out. That's what I need to do right at that moment, which then that article came out of that, but also just in in the years to come, especially in this time that I am charged with being this public poet for the state of promoting um, poetry, but not only of promoting the knowledge of it, but getting people to actually write their stories and write themselves into a story. That's my interest in this. You know, that, that was what I wanted to do as civic poet for Seattle was to get people to write. Yeah, talk about that program. You did a, a program that was called uh, The Poet is In, and yeah. this was in conjunction with the Seattle Public Library, and you uh, you help people write their own poems, mm-hmm. and you know, talk about uh, getting people over sort of the misunderstanding or fear of poetry. Uh, there's no better way than to get people to sit down and, and write their own. Yeah. Um, and we all have stories inside of us, so how did that process work for you? How did you help people get those stories out of them and onto paper? Yeah, you know, I mean, I designed four different classes for that. So there were uh, each class was it was a drop in program, so anybody could drop in. But each time I showed up at the library, I had a different writing prompt, and um, the first prompt had to do with memory, and I think for me that is a crucial key to get people to write because we. If we don't have memories, we're completely unanchored beings. Yeah. Memory really is is what gives us a sense of who we are. And either we're going back to relieve or understand or perhaps change, but we're tethered to our memory as a way of moving forward in a way. Um, and so we all have experiences. And I was interested in experiences of place. So I wanted the memory of Seattle a memory of Seattle. What has your life in Seattle been like? Um, and I presented them with a poem that is the most accessible poem, a Joe Brainard poem um, that begins with "I remember," and it's a mm. very um, natural prompt. And this last time I did it, I had concluded my term as civic poet, but I did. I've done two more of those workshops around Seattle. 
and it was with a group of seniors and some of them are very reticent, you know, that we're going to write poetry. What? I've never done it. This is, I don't know if I want to be here. And I'm very enthusiastic. So I always say, you know, at the end, we'll have poems and we'll share them. Well, of course, the same thing happened. People wrote, a, a person wrote about Vietnam and how and they linked somehow in their writing, they jumped to their experience in Vietnam and coming back to Seattle, which is, you know, this is what poetry is able to do. Time dissolves in a poem. Right. So in a few lines, you're, you know, years behind us, but in a different place, in an entirely different place. And then back here in Seattle in the span of, you know, 10 lines or it's, less. And, and that takes me back to what you said about dreams and how your poems can come from dreams. Dreams are often very nonlinear. They yes. certainly are for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So at the end of this class... Um, one of the, there was a woman who was, she wrote and she did not want to share, which is perfectly fine. But at the end, when everybody had shared, um, she asked me, I never knew that poetry could do this. I am surprised. She said, I'm surprised that in this very short time, people have shared all of these experiences because it was true. It was the breath of experience in the room, you know, somebody else wrote about coming to Seattle and struggling monetarily, and the housing authority was there, and they lived in public housing. This was in the 60s or late 60s. Um, and then we talked about the comparison of the stigma of public housing, you know, so that came out of that. And she was flabbergasted, and she said, I didn't know uh, that this was possible with poetry, which was kind of this demystification that you're talking about, yeah. you know. Um, and I said, you know, I was I was very happy that she arrived at that and that she had a little opening into the possibilities of of the expressive power and the power of poetry, right? And then she said to me, Do you do workshops? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Well, I I don't do I do workshops like this one. I go right. to you know, I do public workshops. Yeah. Um but I thought that was a very that was an example of somebody um writing and discovering something about themselves and and discovering that there was a power within them to to do that you know through language through words and then hearing others um expression was just really wonderful yeah it's extraordinary mm -hmm. one of the things that you did during your time as civic poet was something called the uh, seattle poetry grid. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that people can experience online. And I will provide a link for that on the SoundCloud page and also on the website. But tell us what that is. It's, it's, it's unique and it's kind of exciting. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a map of Seattle. It's a street that the idea comes from, um, there's, we have grids in a city that define our daily life. We have an electrical grid. We have a telephone grid. We have, you know, um, now wireless grids. We have, um, sewer uh, grids, street grids, of course. And I thought, why not a series of poems that could exist as a grid that show that show more of a of of the soul of the city? Because mm -hmm. that's what a poem is, really. This is uh, little um, points of feeling, like charged moments, you know, emotionally charged points uh, on a city map that could explain where we are and who we are at this particular moment, at this particular place. So I was very, my drive there was to be very specific about a place. So I wanted the poems, the only prompt and the only requirement for those poems, for those who submitted were that it needed to be about a specific place. 
So some of them are at an intersection, some of them are at a park, some of them are at a hospital. In the and Pongan. you're talking specifically about a place in Seattle. In Seattle. So yeah. it locates it there. Yeah, so it's a map of Seattle. And there is some, it's a really extraordinary thing to read it because the voices are very different. Yeah. Um, but yet we are all sharing a geography. You know, it's a, a geography of place and then a, a geography of self, both kind of on this map. And I really love the idea of the map because it allows for spatial equity in a way where you you don't have somebody being above or below somebody else. We are all on the same plane on this on this map. And so you could take uh, everybody's experiences way the same for me on the map. And that was after that. I wanted to strip everything else but place an emotion from the map. So there is no references to the poets other than their name and the poem they contributed. Um, because I really wanted us to hold the language in the poem. I mean, people have said, why don't you add, you know, a little bio? And I think the moment I tell you the bio, you will be, um, you will have a bias toward right. the writer. Um, but this way, you don't know. You're really holding the words. And that is what's carrying the the moment there when you open the poem. And so I think it's really, I mean, there's really people who'd never written a poem in their lives who wrote with me on this, as I walk, went around this library program writing with folks. There's people who are celebrated authors on the, on the grid. Mm -hmm. There's children and there is, you know, seniors as well. I mean, the breadth of human possibility <laughs> is there on the map. And, you know? it's, and you can visualize it, which, which yes. is another uh, interesting aspect to it. Um, you know, you've written a lot about Seattle. You, you put together a chapbook of poems called The City. Uh, the City. Um, we all have our reasons for loving where we live in the mm -hmm. Pacific Northwest. Um, but, uh, you know, Seattle is changing very, very rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, there's a concern that the city itself is pricing out creative people mm -hmm. uh, and that the city may be going in the same direction that places like San Francisco or Manhattan did where similar things happened. And I kind of wanted to get your take on Seattle changing, but I'm hoping that I can get you to read uh, your poem, Emerald City Blues, which oh. I think speaks to it so beautifully. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote that poem for um, Mayor's Arts Award. Yes, and it was it, that was the impetus for writing the poem. Yeah, yeah, the city's changing, and I think it's an opportunity for us to decide which way we're going to go. It's really, um, yeah. I mean, I think we are all uh, really suffering from from the change. I don't. Everywhere I go, every day, there's a conversation mm -hmm. being had about how it's affecting it, sure. us. Because it's affecting us, you yeah. know? And so in real um, mundane ways, such as traffic, you know, and getting caught in traffic that wasn't there before, it was non-existent, or construction that delays buses and delays you when you're walking, you can't make a right turn. It's very disorienting. But I think there's also an emotional an emotional component that isn't being talked about enough. I mean, we know that it's changing. We know that uh, people are being displaced, but I don't hear enough stories about how, um, how it's affecting our internal state, you know, our maybe regrets or fears. Certainly there's a lot of fears. Mm. Um, and I don't, I know that artists are engaging with it, but then we're a subset 
you know? Well, you've of, engaged with it. And so I would love it if you could yeah, read that poem for yeah. us. Emerald City Blues. Sky favors no one, gray upon gray or ocean blue. Lovers and homeless wake up under it, wet with dew. The model city we imagine and how to renew. Night after night, old man, his curtains drew. Then in one day, his house raced and cat at the window too. Sky favors no one, gray upon gray or royal blue. All over where there was a structure, now there's two, with fallen buildings, memories of who we are, wither and slew, the fair city we dream of, or the one we misconstrue. Corner barber poets keep faith, comb newspapers through, new trends motivate, then again crows weep a déjà vu. Sky favors no one, gray upon gray or summer blue. Change leads to change till the day when we ask, we are who? And what of our hearts to unlock the impact of each adieu? The city we imagine and the one we are can be true. In future's rearview mirror, we knew what we knew. Those who lose are many, those who win are few. Sky favors no one, gray upon gray or blissful blue. The city we aspire to be or the one we may rue. That is Claudia Castro Luna reading her uh, her poem, Emerald City Blues. And one line jumps out at me, um, and that is the city we imagine and the one we are can be true. It's striking because we can be both. And in many ways, we are both in 2018, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Yes, I think change, change is good. I mean, we can't stop that. We can't stop it, you know? People are coming here as people came here. I mean, I think back when the Denny Regrade was happening, and I think of those citizens, and I think they must have felt like we're feeling now, probably even worse, because the landscape was changing so dramatically. I mean, they were destroying hills and tearing down four. I mean, it was really dramatic. Well, it's dramatic for us in a different way, right? But we really can't stop it. And there are good things about the change. I mean, I live in West Seattle you know, we're being affected by the incredible rate of construction and the and the traffic that, you know, we, we wonder about that. Those are like the daily, like I said, mundane impacts. But I think a result of that is it will become a lot more vibrant. There will be more people. It will, it will infuse it with a new energy. It will be good, right? Some things are good. It's just that when we're blindsided in one way and not think of the larger picture, I think that is the problem, you know, because it's easy to see the good. It's easy to see the the dynamic nature of change and think, wow, this is great. And of course, people who um, have power of purchase will obscure others. I mean, that is what we're seeing. But I think if we really want a livable place, we can't forget about the others because all of us together, it's a combination of people and temperaments and incomes that make a place livable. I mean, I was friends were telling me in San Francisco they can't keep restaurants open because they pe- there aren't enough people in the city who could work in the restaurants, right. and there is no transportation to bring them from where they have to live an hour Not away. Yeah. yeah, and so then it's creating this drought. So if we really want to think about livable places. 
not just on the humanitarian end, which is a different, another conversation, you know, but I think we need to, this is where I think this is an opportunity for us to really think hard about what type of city we want to be and to step out of our skins and advocate in some way, you know? Because if we're comfortable, we could complain, but what is it that we're doing? Do you know what I mean? There's a difference between feeling annoyed or uncomfortable or even afraid and then taking action on that. And I don't know necessarily where the action is, um, but um, I know that we have voices and we could use that, you know? And these conversations are being had yeah. right now yeah. um, in real time. And uh, the results of those conversations will have real consequences Absolutely. Um, to the city and to the region, of course. Uh, and beyond the city, you know, you, uh, are, you are going from being Seattle's civic poet to being the poet laureate of, of Washington. And so your focus will be not solely on Seattle, but, but throughout the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm wondering... You know, it's going to change your geographical reach. Obviously, you're going to be doing a lot more driving, absolutely, heading over the pass a lot yeah. more. But how do you envision? I guess the difference between the the audiences that you'll get in Western Washington versus mm-hmm. the audiences that you'll get in more rural parts of the state. And I don't want to make that sound like a class divide because in California, some of the most vibrant poetry came from the Central Valley, yes. which is, you know, it's 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 very much a working class area. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to, to know sort of how you see that sort of Cascadian divide. Yeah, well, I mean, I, it'll be interesting to discover it, frankly. I mean, I have traveled to Eastern Washington, both in the North and the Yakima Corridor, um, and through central Washington as well. And, you know, rural communities are lacking. Are, there's in, in the sense that there's less services there that mm. are available to people. Cultural access, medical access. I mean, just across the board, right? There is less in that sense. And so I, don't, I really don't know what type of encounters I will have I mean, I'm, I've I've been to Yakima. I did a reading; it was wonderful, and that's at the city college. And I'm going to Walla Walla in a couple of weeks to spend several days over in that corner of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there's definitely a, a linguistic barrier in that we have big pockets of Latino, the Latino community in Washington, although we have an urban and suburban Latino presence in the Puget Sound. Um, we have a large concentration of Latino uh, residents and immigrants in Eastern Washington. And I'm curious to see what those encounters will be like. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm ready to, I'm, I'm ready to go and, and find out and bring, and bring a spirit of, of inclusion. I think the more, even in the short time that I've been on the job, which is like maybe seven days or something, uh, but, but I've been in communication with people across the state, and it's very clear to me that we in the Puget Sound area, um, and I mean that it's really from Bellingham all the way to Olympia, those mm-hmm. of us in this greater metropolitan area have access to the arts and to poetry, certainly to the literary arts, in a way that doesn't exist in a place like um, maybe Ellensburg. You're speaking to a lot of people in Ellensburg and also in Wenatchee and also Walla Walla and a lot of these, these, yeah. these places that you're talking about. And so you have an opportunity then uh, to, to, to bring some of that uh, cultural uh, 
access. Yes, I guess. Yes, and regions. I see this. I mean, I I watch myself already, kind of turning away from Seattle, knowing that Seattle is in perfect hands. You know, Anastasia Rene is a wonderful poet. We have an enormous, generous poetry community here. So, I'm really turning away from what I've been submerged in the last three years, and really turning to look at the state and seeing where I could um, spur some thought and bring some joy and share some beauty, which is what poetry is, right? And so I'm, I'm, really, I'm really looking forward to that, you know? It's and you'll a be discovery encouraging for people me. to tell their stories as well, I Oh, yes, yeah. absolutely. I think a lot of what I want to do is, is get, get people writing. I think the writing part, you know, the questions you were asking at the beginning of the interview I have come to understand what home means to me through the process of writing or to to understand what is it to be an immigrant for me what how how has that process happened and it's writing that has helped me understand that it's helped me process the trauma of war that I lived that was dormant for so it never went away but it was like a sickness in a way that I had inside of me that I couldn't really understand until I started writing about it and it's through writing that I've come to feel of feel myself as a more whole person and um and I and I know that I know that writing could do that even by the simple gesture of writing a poem you know there's something about integrating yourself that comes through that. Um, yeah, and discovering the strength within yourself. I mean, before you came, I was at a middle school teaching uh, writing in Spanish, teaching poetry in Spanish. It's my fourth year at the school. It was my last class. Um, and it was just wonderful to see these eighth graders writing themselves on the page and forcing, you know, because I was kind of forcing, I was encouraging them to write a poem <laughs> that last four weeks. But now what we were reading final drafts and just to see like these wonderful beings and to see themselves describing themselves on the page and just, you know, the power of it, you know, the resonance of themselves in words, you know, that's, that's a fantastic moment. Well, we're looking forward to seeing what you do over the next couple of years, and we're really glad that you're on the job. And thank Claudia you. Castro Luna, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Derek Armstrong McNeil is a Seattle filmmaker whose documentary, The Road to Nicholsville, goes in-depth with residents of the homeless encampments of the same name to hear their personal stories and to learn about who they are as people. Here he talks with a resident named John. I had some wealth at one time. I had some pretty decent wealth at one time. What I realized today, what I was doing back then, is I created this beautiful shell around my life. People looked at this guy, John Ward, and said, you know what, this guy's got a restaurant, he's you know, a fisherman diver, he's got a Harley, you know, Harley Davidson motorcycle shop. I mean, this guy's got Corvettes, he's always out somewhere eating dinner. I mean, this guy is somebody I want to be like. But um, nobody realized that I was living a life which I call empty castles. Empty castles is I had all this neat stuff, but nobody realized I went home alone every night. I walked out of Seattle Airport, I took two pages off and one cell phone off and dropped them in the trash can. And it took about two years for anybody from Alaska to find me. Derek Armstrong McNeil, uh, thank you so much for being here, man. Thank you for having me. So I, I want to start with what Nicholsville is. Uh, pretty much everybody in the Seattle area knows that 
there's a homeless problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've seen the tent encampments, uh, most notably the jungle. Um, but Nicholsville is different from that. And, and I want to get into your reasons for making the film in just a second. But first, just tell us what Nicholsville is. Nicholsville uh, was originally dubbed Nicholsville after Greg uh, Nichols, um, the Seattle mayor at the time. And it was sort of a jab at him for uh, helping along these tent encampments. So it was meant as, as a disparaging like a Hooverville kind of thing. Yeah, exactly, towards him. And uh, they started as tent cities, but the one that I, I, I covered in the film was sort of the original tiny house village version of it. So it was, you know, what most of us would effectively think is a shanty town. It was the first time they had moved from a tent city to an actual community of little tiny houses. And it was a experiment at the time, which has since been deemed a success for what it does in this sort of transitional area, this gray area between being on the street and and being in low-income housing. And so it was the first one. It was probably the most grit, the grittier one of all of them because now they're much cleaner. They have better bathroom facilities at the time. Mm -hmm. It was just sort of tossed on a hill next to the freeways near the uh, International District with porta-potties and... Uh, it was like a miner's camp, really. It was 10th and Dearborn, I think, is right. the, the address yeah. that shows yeah. up in the film. And what year did you begin filming there? 2015. 2015. Late 2015, yeah. So, you know, you do corporate films and ads. You've shot short films mm-hmm. on different topics. Yeah. So then I, I am wondering, what prompted you to do a documentary about Nicholsville? Well, at the time, I wasn't really looking to do a documentary. I was trying to transition from my old career as a, an advertising art director and and software designer into uh, filmmaking. It, was, it had always been a passion of mine. And I was looking for writers and actors to sort of like start do, shooting uh, short scenes and develop a reel and sort of get connected with that environment and slowly build towards fictional narrative work. Uh, But I kept seeing this news story again and again about Nicholsville and how it would be moving and the the local neighborhood that they were moving to were all in an uproar. It was a classic not-in-my-neighborhood sort of situation. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so initially it didn't catch my attention as I was looking for something to do, but it just kept repeating. And then there was – I remember this one morning as I was drinking my coffee and sort of passively listening to the news, I saw this picture on the screen – of the pink tents. And this was just prior to the encampment that I went and filmed. Or is this this ocean of pink tents? And it was my first exposure to that. And if you go Google it, you'll find out it was actually pretty common. There was a lot of them at the time. But that struck me. It struck me because the uniformity struck me. And it, and it, I, it occurred to me at that moment that it was a community. It was no longer tents here and there, homeless people here and there. It was no longer this nebulous cloud of people struggling out there. That It was an actual organized community, to me, which to me was significant. It was, uh, it was, it was kind of sad. And it, I was like, boy, we've reached a point now. The problem has reached a point where it's highly organized and controlled and uniform. It's a community now, which is kind of scary in a way. You know, it's uh, it's it's easy to dismiss people just sort of wandering around on the side of the freeway. It's not easy to dismiss, at least for me, actual neighborhoods, if you will, of homeless people. Yeah, and you mentioned the the colors, and that's actually something that's very striking in the film too. And I would imagine just because of your art direction background, that that would be. And and I should mention that the film was very visually striking. Um, 
was that one of the first things that kind of drew you as a Absolutely. subject? Absolutely. Yeah, know? yeah. So as a, as an artist, I, I tend to be drawn to things that most people would view as ugly. And I, I tend to see the beauty in ordinary, ordinary objects and everyday things as it is, you know, and I'll see something like this little tiny house village of pink huts, which to most people represents a lot of negative things. But to me, I couldn't help but see how beautiful it was. And so from an executional standpoint, it was an opportunity for me to show the world uh, the beauty that I see. Uh, and that's the great thing about being an artist is you get to show the world, the world, your own worldview visually, not just politically or socially, but visually how you take in the world and then share that with everyone else. Like, wow, here's something that's beautiful and what we thought was not beautiful. But it was also... It was also, I saw it as an opportunity, and this is how I transitioned to decide I wanted to do this documentary as opposed to continue on looking for fictional narrative. When I saw that, I felt like a moment was happening in Seattle where we were at a turning point, and I felt I needed to capture that. And that's why I sort of dove into it. Like I needed to capture this sort of what I viewed as a pivotal moment in the city's history where we're going from one type homelessness as this thing we kind of sort of think about to a full-blown community and communities. That's And I wanted to capture that moment, and I saw the opportunity in the little pink huts, which were also beautiful, but at the same time, it gave me something to visually anchor the story in. Man. It's a visual that'll stick in people's heads. You know, ideally, that's the idea. So people used to ask me, why didn't you go out and do it in the jungle and this, or why didn't you do this and that? And I, And my answer is from a very practical standpoint as an artist, those things, you know, if I shot them there, you would never have a sense of place. It would just mm-hmm. always be somewhere decrepit and scary and weird. But at the Nicholsville, there was something, there's an odd charm about it visually in that I saw that as a great opportunity to anchor this idea into people's minds and to fixate it in their heads because there's a, a visual image for them to attach it to. And I like what you say about how this really is a turning point, uh, I think, for us in the Puget Sound region in terms of the way that we're discussing this. It's very much right. a cultural moment. Um, there are five people, by my count, that you profile in this film, give or take. There, there are a yeah. couple others who have smaller uh, uh, stories, but they tell very, very personal stories. Yeah. They really open up to you, what did you need to do as a filmmaker to gain the trust of yeah. people to really be willing to open up? Because you you have a, a couple of, of moments where, where you can see tears forming in their eyes. Yeah. These, these very painful stories that these people are telling to you on camera. So how was the process for you to really get people to... To, to open up to you. Well, it was sort of twofold. My my method, if you will, uh, which at the time I didn't think that think through a lot, to be honest. Uh, I just kind of like went for it and studied cinematography and other filmmaking things along the way. Uh, but one was I, you know, I'm really good at people one on one, sitting down with them and having conversation and. Uh, people know that they they know they can generally tell if you're disingenuous. They can get a sense if you have an agenda. All people have that sort of, you know, they can tell if you've got something up your sleeve. And so, first off, I think they know that I'm. You have to be genuinely interested in these people. You have to be genuinely a kind person because if you're not, they'll know. And there's no method that can work around that. And I and I was just very honest with them. And I said, you, you know, this is what I want to do. I'm not out here to. You know, make a money, make money off you. God knows I haven't. I've lost a lot of money making this film. You know, how much have you put in? If you don't mind, I put in like twenty thousand a gear Mm. and over a year and a half of my time. So, if you were to quantify it like a legitimate job, it'd be like a hundred and fifty thousand dollar project. But uh, all at my own expense. Um, So I assured them that it was not 
for personal gain necessarily. And I said, I said, look, I'm going to be honest. Yeah, I do want to be a filmmaker and I want to do that. I do have my personal reasons, but I'm not here to talk to you because I want to use you. I'm very straight with people and direct. And so I think that puts people at ease when you just, you just say what's on everyone's mind and just blurt it out. And then you can have an open, honest conversation. Um, the, uh, and so, and I'd say, I wouldn't, and so that's the first, second thing is I would never repeat a take. I would always just, you know, I would never tell them what the questions are going to be. I'd never repeat a take. So everything they say would was exactly the first response and honest response. Um, cause I, I was more interested in getting a legitimate and authentic response than I was about the narrative, which made it much difficult, very difficult for me later when I went to edit it. I can imagine. Yeah. It was uh, very difficult cause I didn't plan as well. And I, in the future I am planning a little bit more, but still a loose framework I think is best because I still don't want to take second takes. I still want to get the most honest response because that's what makes the audience connect is if they're watching and hearing an honest response from a technical standpoint i keep i have a very very small thumbprint i bring in a very small camera it's a it's a dslr camera film i had just like one little camera a shotgun mic and that was it Mm. and me and so you're very nimble and in fact there is a scene where you follow one of the residents into the jungle and you go through the The, the fencing there it was kind of a kind of a tense moment, but you wouldn't have been able to do that if you had had right. a big you know if, if you had had a crew for example crew or cinema camera I think uh, the, the the notion that you need a crew to do a film like this to me is ridiculous i mean uh, i don't it's completely unnecessary I mean how much gear and people do you need to interview a human being really well you have a, a musician background as yeah. we were discussing before we started here so it's a DIY thing right right yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, so it's, it's part, part of that aesthetic. And I'm comfortable with fixing the audio later, you know, right. because of my musician's background. I've worked in go. Pro Tools, et cetera. And so I'm comfortable with boosting up the bass to make it sound like there was a preamp in my audio, that kind of thing. You know, all those little sure, tricks yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah. And, uh, but it was, yeah, I think it's just a small thumbprint. And, and, you know, and that's the way I like it is if a million dollars fell in my lap tomorrow, I would not use that million dollars to make a million dollar film. I would use it to make five smaller films and keep things very small, you know, because uh, there's only, in my mind, there's re- to tell this type of story, you really don't need a lot. Right. A theme that comes up uh, with most of your subjects is that most people are only a paycheck or a catastrophic illness away from winding up homeless themselves. Yeah. Um, I imagine this was a point that you were hoping to drive home. Well, it was, it, yeah, it was a theory that I was sort of trying to prove out in this because that, that is a big thing. Like, I remember I was listening to a radio show and someone had mentioned, well, you're on, this is before, you know, back in 2014 and the, the, you know, the idea, the subject was starting to swish around in my head on a daily basis. And I remember someone on a radio show saying, we're only a paycheck away. And, and I thought about it and I thought about all my life and the people I'd known. And I thought, yeah, you know, we, many of us are truly, a lot of people, I think, who have the appearance of a middle-class life, and Colin ended up echoing all this. Yeah, and so let's talk about Colin. Colin is an older man uh, who talks about being a professional before he became homeless. He talks about having a stock portfolio. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about Colin. Colin, I wish I could have... I. I wish I could have gone deeper into Colin. I wish I could have. I was going to do a feature-length film and cut it for a variety of reasons. But in the feature-length version, he had sent me pictures. I was going to use pictures from them in their previous lives. And, and I should mention that this film clocks in just under 50 minutes. Yeah. So I wanted to do something much longer. But I cut, I cut it because of, of Desiree's story. Um, and I didn't want to do harm to her and her son by 
like focusing on that too much. Um, how it ends for her is in the credits, but, yeah. uh, so Colin, um, he was a Marine. He's an engineer. He's educated. He's smart. He's intelligent. He used to live a upper middle class life. He had an investment portfolio. He's, he lived in port in uh, Florida and built boats. He was a, Mar- what he said, he was a mechanic in the Marines during the Bay of Pigs operation. Oh, was Yeah. <laughs> that didn't come up in the film. That's no, there's so yeah. much about it. That all of these people, especially Colin, that we don't get that deep into and ended up being a, something shorter that was like, a fast clip that, you know, I could breeze through really quickly and get some points and get out. But yeah, he, and he sent me these pictures of him when he was in Florida and younger, hanging out with his, his honeys and the bikinis (laughs) and just living the life, man. And, and he he never, ever could have looked for it and dreamed that one day he'd be in this tent down on the corner of I-5 and 405. It's just unimaginable. And I thought, gosh, if, I mean, it's not, it doesn't take much of a leap of imagination to think, well, how many people, right now who think they're living the life and they're set, you know, because of a, cer- a, a variety of circumstances, sure. they'll find themselves at 60 years old sitting in a tent somewhere because he was at that age and circumstances where he did all the right things in life. And yet things went terribly wrong, you know, and, and there are all types of homeless people or their lives are as complex and diverse as people who are not homeless. Right. Right. And that actually brings in the addiction uh, subject. We, mm. we talked a, about a little bit earlier. Uh, and, you know, I think people assume that a lot of the plurality, I think people assume that the plurality of, of homeless people are addicts. Um, but a resident that you profile named Ryan talks about this. Mm hmm. So did you yourself have the same assumptions about homeless people being addicts and alcoholics going into this? Well, I assume that a certain portion were in as much as I assume a certain portion of every community are addicts. I mean, in any cul-de-sac, I'm sure you can find any any, any group of people, no matter where they are, I believe you'll, you will you can pick out certain characters and uh, you'll, you'll find people who are secret, secretly alcoholics or secretly addicted to painkillers. And, and I assumed that this community was no different in that there were people who were struggling with addiction and some that weren't, um, which more or less turned out to be the case. I couldn't break it down scientifically and tell you what the percentage was, but there were people who struggled with substance abuse there, but they were very careful not to show that as addicts are. Right. Well, did you specifically try not to use them as subjects or at the very least, if any of the characters that you talked to were addicts, it certainly didn't come up in the film. I chose people for who they were as as people from their backgrounds and let it play out as it did. Whether they turned out to be addicts or not wasn't so that wasn't a conscious choice. Exactly. Okay. So I was more interested in showing that these people come from diverse backgrounds, right. that, that, that although they're here at this point in time, they came from many different places and lives. And if addiction came into it, it did. If it didn't, it didn't. But I didn't want to have any agenda one way or the other. You know, I wanted to be I wanted to take an honest look because I was curious myself. Yeah. And, and you did. Um, so before we go, I just want to ask you about something that you said at a recent screening of your film uh, about the government's role in addressing the homeless problem. You said that you didn't think the government had a role to play in that. I th- well, I, here's what I think. I think, uh, and my my opinion is sort of always evolving, but I think that the reason I say that, and I've said it be, uh, several times at screenings, is I think there's a lot of emphasis, there's too much emphasis on 
the mayor and what is the mayor doing to solve this problem. I, I don't think it's realistic to assume that any one person or governmental body or any institution or body can solve such a complex problem. I think it takes a team effort, which will involve government and will mm. involve lots of community organizations, of which mm. there are many. Sure. And I think so. I think it's wrong. to. So you're not f- saying that government has no role to play. I need, right. Okay. I'm not saying government has no role to play. That 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 comment was a response to my perception that the mayor is sort of being uh, the mayor's office in our local city government is being yelled at to solve the problem and i don't think that's really realistic you know mm-hmm. i don't think the government is necessarily capable of solving such a complex problem and it ultimately what i hope when people see this film and i think it's worked sometimes is that people will feel like it it's their community and they feel invested to help their community members and help the and to to pitch in and help solve this problem on their own, you know, uh, you know what what are you doing? So you can ask the government what is the government doing with this problem. Well, I think every person looked at themselves and say, well, what are what am I doing to help this problem? Because this is not an abstraction. This is a problem that affects me and affects everyone. What can I do to help? You know, so in my case, I made a film. My daughter's case, she's a little girl. She makes a bags full of snacks to hand off to people on the off ramps. Mm. And somewhere between those two extremes are many things people can do. And if everyone pitches in and, and the government can, and the mayor continues to attempt to figure out what to do, we can all collectively address the problem. But I, I think it's wrong to assume any one governmental body can solve everything for us. I think, you know. It just seems unrealistic to me. Well, as you say, you made a film, and it is a good one. And uh, I will note that there is a screening of The Road to Nicholsville coming up on March 12th on Bainbridge Island. I will have all the details for that screening available on the SoundCloud page and also at IndivisiblePodcast.org. But uh, Derek Armstrong McNeil, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the show, man. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for this week's show. All the links that I talked about today can be found on the SoundCloud page as well as at IndivisiblePodcast.org. If you have not done so already, please do go over there and subscribe to get the show delivered to your email inbox. And speaking of email, the email address for the show is IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com. Please keep the correspondences coming. I love it. And the Twitter handle is at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The executive producer is... Aaron Albanese. Thank you again to my guests, Claudia Castro-Luna and Derek Armstrong-McNeil. And my special thanks goes out to Maggie Cuevas for her help. Thanks as always to you for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.